So I am preaching today, uh, continuing in our 1 Corinthians series, and um, I, I hope you are here last week and saw I was able to send a video from ancient Corinth. I mean, I did not know I was going to be in ancient Corinth, and somehow, like, wandering around ancient Corinth and seeing all of the places where, where Paul would have, like, sold tents and preached the gospel and was on trial in front of the pro-council for illegal teaching it was just, it was wild. And I've never been like that big of a history buff, but I don't know, as I get older, it's just landing with me. And I told Pete last night, actually, they speculate that Paul may have sold like tents, as you know them, but also awnings. Pete's our, our Paul. Pete has an awning, had an awning business for all this time. Now he's training people on how to sell awnings. Pete, you're the most spiritual one in the room, really, as it turns out. I wanted to just bring back a, a, a couple of things. One, that, just the faith sort of comes from wandering around there and seeing. But also, I was at a, a meeting with about 90 of the leaders of the Advance Movement, which is what Monument is a part of. We're part of a network of churches. It's about 175 churches around the world. Um, so fun, such a diverse group of people, um, ethnically in terms of experience, socioeconomically, like there, there is such richness in being with the brothers and sisters. So we're at this hotel in Marathon, which is 26 miles from Athens. This is where Marathon comes from. Like everything came from ancient Greece. It's crazy. They invented democracy. So anyway, we're staying in Marathon and... Uh, you know, it's a group of pastors, so pretty friendly folks, and they bump into this couple, and uh, on, the si on the door to the conference room was a little sign that said, Advanced Church. They didn't really know it wasn't a church, they just called this Advanced Church, and, and the Swedish couple said, are, are you guys here with a church? And the pastor was like, yeah, kind of, um, because you don't know how to start trying to explain that to somebody, and she goes, oh, that's really cool. We're on our 10th anniversary, and we're only here for two nights, but we wanted to get away and celebrate, but also pray because we're gonna be planting a church in Sweden. And they were like, oh, that's interesting. And she goes, my, my husband's super gung-ho about it, but, but I feel like we need other people to do this with. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> I feel like we need some support. Our church who's planting us are all excited, but they don't even know what to do. They don't even know what to tell us or how to teach us. And so we searched for a hundred different places and from New York to Greece and finally landed on this hotel to just come and pray for God to bring a divine appointment where it comes to us planting this church. And the pastor was like, well, you know. <laughs> We're part of a church planting network. And they were like, you are? They came into our final session of our conference. Everyone surrounded them and just prayed for them. And, and you could tell they were just absolutely blown away. Talk about a divine appointment. You stumbled into a church planting conference in your need for support and others to help you plant this church. Like, God is so kind. Yeah. God is so good. And the thing I realized, because there's layers to the story, is that the guy was all gung-ho. I've seen this before. The woman was like, wait a second. I think we need a few more things before this happens. And God's like, you're right. We're wired differently. 
But God has given us one another because we both have equal value in his eyes. We think differently. We feel differently. And he's like, do we need anybody else? And she's like, yes, we do. And so they took this trip and they found another group. I don't know what their future will be, but it just reminded me of how God has wired women. How God has given us the gift of, of women. I mean, God wanted to honor her needs, the way she was feeling, her concern. And it's no surprise, she is his daughter, after all. I just think about my two daughters, and it makes so much sense. I want the best for them. I want them to thrive. I want to know their concerns and their questions, and I want to help them in any way I can. I mean, isn't that just like Father God? I'm not nearly the Father that God is. I'm hopefully a type, a shadow of our Father God, but He exceeds my care for my daughters by a long shot. And that is his smile upon his daughters here today. God cares about women. I mean, that sounds silly. It may not need to be said. It may sound glaringly obvious. But, but the gospel is good news for men and women. Actually, because of who he is as father. The gospel is good news for everyone. And, and the thing is, at points in church history, and as a whole, the Bible's been used actually against and not for women. We know this is true, which is tragic given God's love for his daughters. The passage we'll look at today is one such passage, and I, I believe its truth will, will serve us. You know, the elders discussed like, at length, like when, how, and if we should focus on the passage that I'm about to read, because it's important for our age to seek the truth of Scripture on all issues, especially the difficult ones. And here's the thing. First Corinthians has been a little tough, right? I mean, there's been like a lot of things. It's, it's exposed our idols and our entitlements as Jim preached last week so well. So it hasn't always been easy, but the point of preaching is not to be controversial or, or to stir anger in Christians about the brokenness of the world. Like the, the point of preaching is actually to celebrate the truth of God's love and His grace to us in, in multitudes of ways. And, and to do that with strength and vigor and out of the truth of Scripture. It's all meant to bring freedom where there is bondage and relief where there is strain. The Word of God brings life and life abundantly. So we want to preach it well. That's what Jesus came to do. So, all of that said... I want to dive into what Andrew Wilson, the commentator, and I quote him often because he's brilliant on this passage. He calls it a fiendishly difficult passage. <laughs> and I'm like, why are we doing this on Mother's Day? And I really think part of it is because it has been misunderstood and misapplied, and fresh understanding brings freedom and it brings relief. One of our staff members said, this is one of those passages I skip. Sorry, Joel. Because uh, <laughs> you get to it, you scratch a hole right through your head and go, whatever that was. But, but I also hope that you see it's, it's quite appropriate as we celebrate Mother's Day and, and the women among us. All right, so let's dive in. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2. I'm going to just read the whole passage. It says, Now I commend you, Paul says to the Corinthians, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand 
that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesied, prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a man, if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> the perplexing, fiendishly difficult word of the Lord. What a passage. Now, let's just start with, we obviously don't have a value of head coverings for women here in our church. Why? The Bible would seem to say that, and the Bible is our final authority for Scripture. And as you can see, this passage isn't just about or for women, it's for all of us to understand. It speaks of men and women. How? Why? So many questions. Why is Paul so fired up about this stuff, of all the things? And so we need to look closer. Um, but one of the things that we understand about how to apply Scripture, how to understand Scripture, is principle versus practice. I'm going to get to that in a moment, but that is a key heading over this whole subject. So the beauty of this passage, honestly, as we'll dig in deeper, is that it reflects God's heart, God's perspective. And, and though it has been generally misunderstood and misapplied, it is as valuable as any other verses in Scripture for us to grasp the heart and love of God. God loves and cherishes women. We know that. On Mother's Day, we don't just celebrate biological mothers either, but all of those women who have, who are, or will exercise their God-given abilities as mothers. It is mothers who help to raise the next generation of warriors who will storm the gates of hell and push back darkness, who will rescue people from bondage whether that is biological or spiritual children. So I do want to pause and just honor those who mother outside of biological mothering. Now, we know the particular demand on biological mothering, on adoptive mothering, and so I want to acknowledge that as well. Raising kids under your roof for 18 years. Let's face it, it's not 18 years. It's pretty much forever, right? We're now learning that. We have a 20, almost 2-year-old and a 19-year-old. We love you girls, but it doesn't seem that this will end anytime soon. And we know, really, like the parenting of adult children thing, it's a whole different thing. Even with our wonderful, beautiful, sweet daughters, 
I see all the older people kind of laughing and nodding their heads. We know, we know. It's hard. Parenting is hard. Mothering is hard work. And we are just so grateful. It's for life. And the sacrifice it requires is immeasurable. And our gratitude for it is also immeasurable. We love moms and all of the women who make up the family of God. It's what he intended it to be, representing his image through men and women. I just want to remind us, because a backdrop to this passage, and we'll get into it now, is Genesis 1.27. Very simple, maybe you remember it, right at the beginning of the Bible, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Simple stuff. Who knew those last six words, male and female, he created them, would be such an important clarifier in our day and age. Men and women were made respectively in the image and likeness of God. The culture around is starting to tell a very different story. That is why this passage continues to be incredibly important to us. It speaks to that very issue. Isn't that amazing how many issues Paul speaks to in 1 Corinthians? And men and women were made in the image and likeness of God. Without women, we're missing who God is. Yes. We are missing a substantial understanding of who God is without you ladies in our midst. We're grateful. You fill out the picture of God himself for us. And this doesn't mean that we don't have compassion on those who struggle with this whole transgender thing, you know, d d gender dysmorphia. We want to have compassion on these folks. And at the same time, Scripture is our plumb line. How do we hold those two? Man, we want to be a community that holds those two, those two but it's not easy. We must follow him in the narrow path because Jesus was so compassionate, so sympathetic, so empathetic as he walked in our shoes, and so completely dedicated to the word of truth. We want to continue to do and be that. Men and women are equally important for the formation and sustainability of the human race. As it says, in the Lord, women, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. There is an interdependence between the two. It's a great quote from the Expositor's Bible Commentary, which just kind of nails this. God has established the man and the woman as equal human beings. As woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, in verse 12. So in the Christian community, believers should treat one another with mutual respect and admiration as they realize each other's God-given special functions and positions. This is so important. So important for us just to push back the cloud of confusion that exists on gender in this day and age, and I don't need to go after that while just celebrating the things that God gives us to understand all of what this is about. And it all seems to begin with verse 3, this interesting thing about the head of. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. What does that mean? What do we do with that? How does that help us? One of the things we have to understand, and honestly, being over in Greece, like some of this stuff in 1 Corinthians landed even harder by being over there. Number one, I'm in the marketplaces, and like some of the stuff you see, how can I put it lightly on Mother's Day? 
The way they portray intimacy in the marketplace flagrantly is just wild to me. It, it was something that I had never experienced before. I mean, on the plates and massive symbols just all over. This just seems to be the culture. So there's a cultural thing here that in some ways we just can't even understand. It's so disconnected. And sometimes we don't have those things in our own culture, but I just kind of was like, oh, oh, I get it. That hasn't changed in some ways in 2,000 years. Isn't that wild to consider? Would Paul write a similar, a similar letter to the Corinthians today? I don't know. What would Paul's letter look like to us in our day and age in America? Well, one of the things that we have to understand is honor-shame culture. Are you familiar with honor-shame culture? So this is a really important piece of understanding this passage because if we just directly translate it to American culture, and we've seen it, women walk around with head coverings in certain denominations, in certain sects of Christianity, right? I think that's failing to truly understand the culture and deriving this. And it gets into something that actually Andrew Wilson calls symbolic... Symbolic, symbolic. I'll get there in a second. Translation. Symbolic translation. But before we get there, the honor-shame culture is really defined simply as this. The ongoing attribution or loss of esteem by one's peers, family, social class, city, and so on. Right? So with every interaction that happens, you're either honored or shamed. Right? Some of you who come from Middle Eastern cultures or from, uh, from Asian cultures, like th this is actually still very much uh, at play. And, and I'm saying that not to say it's all bad. There is something about honor in cultures and a recognition of what it means that what we do affects other people. Right? And so there's an honor-shame culture. So this thing of the head... Oftentimes we think of, we see this thing, well, you know, God is the head of Christ. All we think of is like the head of a company. Okay, well, he's the CEO because we're very hierarchical, right? But we know that there's not hierarchy in the Trinity. There's actually a relationship, a mutual relationship among these three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we automatically think, oh, the head. Okay, well, he's the top of the pyramid. But that's not actually in an honor-shame culture how this was regarded. The head is actually speaking of how whatever it is that those do that he is the head of reflect on the head. That is just part of the cultural dynamics of an honor-shame culture. And you see it all the time. We don't not understand how something somebody in your family does might bring shame on the family. This is that times 10. This is that exponentially because of the social dynamics of the culture. Now, I know that's kind of a deep dive on something pretty foreign to us, but we have to sort of understand that in order to go, oh, okay, that's why there is this every head of, uh, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. It is how we reflect one another in this that's why Jesus was so concerned about the things he did. He said in John 5, 19, I only do what I see my Father in heaven doing. Why? Because what I do reflects on him. Right. And that's just simply it. And just because it says that actually the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God, it doesn't mean that women are not made in his image. That's just not what he's focused on right here. We know clearly from Genesis 1, that that is true. Women are made in the image of God. They are not lesser. They share in this relationship that we have. 
Okay, I want to read a little Wilson on this because I think he's going to help us now dig into the passage out of this thing of honor, shame, and cultural dynamics. Are you ready? Yes. Are you in? Are you interested? We are because we want to understand the truth, right? So Wilson says this, the differences between men and women, which Paul is arguing, need to be reflected in their appearances are not merely the result of cultural customs. They stem from the fact that God created man first and then created woman from him and for him. So if men pray or prophesy while looking like women, or women pray or prophesy while looking like men, or even prostitutes, as we have just seen, the distinctiveness of the sexes is undermined. In the very context, public speech to and on behalf of God, where it should be most clearly upheld. Paul wants the glory of maleness and femaleness to be represented in the gathered church and especially in public speech. It brings glory to God, honor to both men and women, clarity to angels, and unity to the church. Isn't that interesting? That Paul is pointing up the need for women and men to be distinct when they come before God. How does that land in the current culture of androgyny and gender confusion? It, it, it flies in the face of it, which again is not the intent. The intent is to celebrate the truth of God's aim and God's creation. Wilson goes on to say that in much of the world today, even you know, a man would look disgraceful if he wore a particular type of clothing or a haircut in other cultures, right? This, this stuff is very sort of important in the context of other cultures. A woman would look disrespectful or downright sexually promiscuous if she refused to wear a hijab, let down her hair, exposed her neck and shoulders. Dressing like this would not just bring shame on her, but on her husband as well, right? You're somewhat familiar with this. This is the context in which he is talking about it. She might as well go the whole day, the whole way, and cut off all her hair like a temple prostitute. And since that's obviously a disgrace, it follows that she should keep her head covered, as it says in verse 6. Okay, so we're starting to untangle this a little bit. This is not intended to do what is so often done in the context of men and women in church. Church, we have to get this right. We have to know how he thinks about it and how he sees it and once he want, what he wants to do with it so that when people come in, they go, oh my gosh, this is very different. I think there's going to be, I hope, I pray that there's going to be a whiplash from some of this transgender stuff in popular culture where people just go, wait a second, we've totally lost the script. And they're going to look for places like this where we've held fast yes to God's creation, his created order, the beauty of the distinctiveness of men and women. Again, I'm not trying to be controversial. I'm trying to unpack what the word of God is saying so we can hold fast to it. Because we get this for an hour and a half on Sunday and we get that the rest of the time. The message is consistent and strong and it's everywhere you look. And so we have to rally around this, not with anger or ire or to throw it in people's faces, but so that we know that we know what God wants. Yes. So that we can live that, we can be that, we can reflect His glory. We only do what we see our Father in heaven doing. That is where we find freedom and peace and joy and relief. Isn't that beautiful? 
that line, for this reason and because the angels are watching. It's just amazing to consider that actually all of heaven is watching earth. The angels are watching. They are amazed by what is happening. And so he's saying, actually, there's a certain accountability. All of heaven is watching. And so, actually, for this reason, and because angels are watching, we need to conduct ourselves as God would have us. There is not just peace and joy and freedom. There's the opportunity to reflect to the whole host of heaven that we are doing what God has called us to do. What a joy that we get to be a witness to the heavenly host. The Bible says we will judge the angels. Mind-blowing. I can't even figure that out in, in some way. But it's just, it's there, right in Scripture. It says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. So how do we further understand this passage as it relates to our faith and practice in 21st century America? Because again, some of this is cultural, but some of it transcends culture. And the whole thing seems to revolve around what men and women do or don't do on their heads while prophesying. Well, one of the things I really appreciate about this is that actually we quickly see by implication that men and women pray and prophesy in their gatherings. Okay, that's settled. There's a curious passage a few verses, a few chapters later that says, I do not permit a woman to speak. That's in 1 Corinthians 14. We go, well, how do we reconcile these things? Well, actually, what we see in the broader swath of Scripture is that there are women who prophesy, the daughters of Agabus. Uh, here we see in 1 Corinthians 12 and in 14 that he's not making those delineations quite the same. And here we see that actually he's saying men and women pray and prophesy in your public gatherings. So that is settled for us. If you have a question as to why that's how we operate, and Megan came up and spoke, even in spite of some of these tricky passages, it's because the broader swath of Scripture would tell us that that is how it is intended to work. Another quote says, When praying or prophesying, a man who covered his physical head in Paul's day dishonored his metaphorical head because doing so mimicked the socially elite pagan priests. And a wife who uncovered her physical head in Paul's day dishonored her metaphorical head, i.e. her authority, her husband, because she was refusing to wear a symbol of her being married. This is the passage's main argument. So this continues to open up how we can apply these strange suggestions about head coverings when it comes to our current cultural context. What do we do with this thing that man is made in God's image and reflects God's glory and woman reflects man's glory? What do we do with that? Wilson gives this great analogy and he says, you know, we have an apple tree in our yard and from its apples we make apple crumble. Such a British thing. If you ever had apple crumble, it's excellent, right? It's like a dessert. And he says that the apple crumble is the glory of the apple. The apple produces the apple crumble and actually by making apple crumble with the apple, it, it actually shines. It makes the apple, all of its attributes just come to life. The apple is the glory of the apple tree. Because the tree in and of itself is great, but the fact that it produces this fruit that then goes on to produce this wonderful dessert, 
This is the glory of the glory of. The apple is the glory of the tree. The apple crumble is the glory of the apple. I mean, it's kind of a little bit of a silly picture, but you see that one is not better than the other. One just celebrates the other. One just points to the other. One glorifies the other, if a dessert can glorify anything. So it helps, right, to go, all right, this isn't so much what it has at times been used to sort of impose. Actually, it brings freedom, it brings truth, it brings honor to men and to women. Once again, Wilson Some churches follow Paul's instructions to the letter. Women cover their heads when praying or prophesying. Men don't. Others ignore it altogether, dismissing it as cultural. The latter is more common, right? We don't see a lot of churches like that, but in many ways more problematic. The Bible cannot be neatly divided up into timeless bits, which we still need to live by now, and cultural bits, which we thankfully don't. And even if it could be, Paul's arguments here are drawn from Genesis and the Trinity, among others, which look ominously timeless. Symbolic translation. I mentioned that earlier. It sounds like a very fancy word, but you'll get it. It's quite simple, actually. And it's just physical symbols mean different things in contemporary, in his case, London and ancient Corinth. And if we don't translate the symbols from one culture to another, we risk all sorts of misunderstandings. So when we read the exhortation that happens in Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 5, that says, greet one another with a holy kiss. We don't dismiss it as merely cultural, but nor do we ask our welcome team to start kissing everybody. (laughs) Instead, we take the meaning of the physical symbol and an expression of familial love and affection that brothers and sisters would use and then translate it into symbols that exist within our own culture for familial love and affection. A hug, a kiss, a handshake, a fist bump, whatever it is. And so you see this starts to become a little less foreign and weird and let's just skip it because we can derive meaning and truth. It's principle over practice, as I mentioned. Take Jesus. He said in Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Has anybody in here had their right eye cause them to sin? I would expect it's the eyeless people in the room. Yes. Thank you for that, those show of hands. Yeah, because we all have. If we've ever beheld something in an idolatrous way, we're guilty of this. Does he mean, now you must all have an, a guy, an eye-gouging ceremony? He also says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Principle over practice. It would be a church of armless Christians. Right? We know that. But he's not just, this isn't a throwaway. He is speaking in strong terms, hyperbole, in order to compel us around how important it is to regard these things as he is saying them. John 6, 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Did he mean they were now supposed to kill him and eat of him? No. But there is a principle that we know, and we're going to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, in just a moment as we close the service. But actually, he was trying to help us understand the the relationship, the metaphorical symbols and how to translate them into our Christian faith 
and practice. The beauty is if there's ever any question about this, we can look to our perfect model. The model of perfect community comes from the Godhead, the Trinity, three persons in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all of equal importance. They all regard one another with respect and consideration. They have different roles. God sent his Son to earth. The Holy Spirit then followed after the ascension of Christ. God was overseeing all of this sovereignly. They each fulfilled a different purpose, but none was expendable and all are necessary. And they all worked in different ways. This is the way we're to understand it. And I'm just so sorry that has been misunderstood and misapplied when it comes to men and women. We have focused so much on what one can't do and the other can't do, and, and actually it hasn't been helpful. It hasn't released everyone into their God-given gifting. Everyone fulfills a different purpose. Men and women in the church fulfill a different purpose. Men are fathers, women are mothers. There's health in both. Our experience is often to create hierarchy, to marginalize some over others out of fear and insecurity, but actually our perfect model doesn't afford us the opportunity to do that. God does not do that. Jesus does not do that. The Holy Spirit does not do that. So our value of men and women is separate and distinct, and distinct created by God in His image and playing uniquely suited roles as mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, daughters and sons, is not intended to stifle or oppress. It is intended to honor our Creator who gave us life. And our greatest aim is to please Him. That's what we want. That's all we want. That is wherein we find our greatest joy. This beautiful truth, it's not to be used to bludgeon a non-believer or marginalize those who don't understand. It's actually the exact opposite of that. It's useful to help everyone understand the beauty of the gospel and the profound depths of love God has for his children. Just like that Swedish woman, she just smiled and she just looked at me and she said, God sees us. God sees me. And I just want to assure everyone here that feels perhaps unseen or has maybe been marginalized. Maybe you are recovering from some situations in your life, in your church experience that have caused you to, maybe you're here today for the first time and you're just barely sticking a toe back in the water because of the mess that has been your previous experience. We hope you can find a place here at Monument to come whole, to get healing, to hear the truth of God's word and to be treated with dignity and respect. The last thing I'll say, and then I want to go into communion, um, is just that, uh, let's face it, we live in an age of androgyny. What is, what is androgyny? Men and women look more alike but not just in what we wear at this point. Now there's actually blurred lines in our biology and it dishonors God, as it does in 1 Corinthians 11. With all compassion to those who wrestle with these issues, it's very real. I believe it is real for people. I have known people for whom it is very real. So we don't want to hit them over the head, but we want to continue to elevate the truth and try to bring that 
into good application and understanding. But it's also not just about our sexuality and our gender. We live in an age of image management. Who are you reflecting? Who are you trying to reflect? On social media, in your workplace, in your relationships, who are you trying to reflect? And how is that a witness or not of who God is in your life? This is the wonderful challenge and encouragement to us. This is wherein we find purpose and meaning when we reflect His glory and His image.